This morning, if you would, uh, turn to Jeremiah. It's about in the middle of your Bible, and I think I wrote down it's like 527, uh, if you don't have a Bible, but it's, it's about midway in, in the Bible. And we're going to be talking about uh, uh, four characters that are found in the book of Jeremiah. And um, I need to tell you a little bit of history, so bear with me a little bit. Uh, Sometimes setting the scene is important. If I told you Albert Pujols, it was the bottom of the ninth, the Cardinals were down by a run and they had runners on. If I told you that Albert's hit 30 home runs, you'd say, well, big deal. He's hit 30 home runs the last 11 years. But if I explained to you that it was the bottom of the ninth and it was against the Cubs, most of us, except for Dale Compton, <laughs> would be really interested. <laughs> <laughs> so just to hit 30 home runs is not unusual, but as I set the his history there, it becomes more important. Well, it turned out, Poole struck out. <laughs> but <laughs> the Cubs won <laughs> that game. But uh, four characters that I would like to, to make mention of, and we're going to put emphasis on the last one. And I'd like uh, a show of hands. Anybody heard of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? Greenville students, come on now. <laughs> king Nebuchadnezzar was one of the more powerful, back around uh, 600 BC, leaders of the world. Uh, uh, the Babylonians, uh, he, uh, he had ruled at the time, somewhat over Egypt and the Assyrians. There was battles going on the whole time, but. He's known for his, uh, his wayward gods. He had a bunch of gods of all different kinds. He was not too interested in battle. He was interested in these gods and building great edifices, great gardens and great buildings. He fits into this history that we're going to be talking about. The other person I want to mention to you is Zedekiah. Anybody familiar with Zedekiah? See a couple hands. Zedekiah was king of Judah, which was the Israeli people. The Israel is kind of split into t two different people groups, Israel and Judah. He was the last king recorded. He was a mealy kind of guy. He was just wishy-washy. He was all over the place. One day he'd be for the Babylonians because they were in power. Next minute he'd be uh, trying to create a coup against the Egyptians. He'd make a decision and then flim-flam back and forth and change his mind over and over again. He was not, he, he sort of followed the polls, if you will. Whatever the poll said is what he tried to be. Of course, we don't have any of that in our government, but that, that was the case for King Zedekiah. The next person was uh, Jeremiah. The book was named after him. He was a prophet. By a prophet, I mean he interpreted the times. And the times were not good. He started his ministry when he was 21. And in chapter 1, I'd like to, to read to you just a couple verses. Kind of set the scene once again. In the first three verses, it, there's a list of names of who Jeremiah belonged to, and I'm not going to try to read those names because I most likely butcher some of them. But he 
Jeremiah had a scribe, and so we don't know if the scribe wrote this or if Jeremiah wrote it himself, but he speaks in the first person beginning at verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, Behold, I farmed you in the womb, and I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, or I set you aside. I appointed you to be the prophet of the nations. And he was. He was known throughout all the nations. He was known throughout Israel. He was, we have very clear history background. He was about 21 years of age. And, and, and he writes here in verse 6, Then I said, and the word is, uh, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only the, a youth. I'm only a young person. Hang on. I'm only a young person. I, I'm not mature enough. I don't know how to speak. I haven't had a chance to uh, develop all my skills. God's reply says, do not say, and that's a very strong commander, I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, that's where you're going to go. And wherever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them. I'm with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Probably most of us have not ever received a calling like that. At 21 years of age, he would preach to the nations. He ministered, some believe, from 41 to 44 years. And it goes on to say that his message was totally rejected. God told him that it was going to be rejected. He told the people that if they didn't repent, they were going to be destroyed. And he uses graphic languages he, uh, and accuses them of different uh, uh, wild things and he uses all kinds of illustrations to make his point but they continued to reject him see Israel and Judah had gone their own way they had worshipped their idols and they wanted no part of uh, Jeremiah's God they had turned their back on God and, and he says over and over again if you don't turn back to where uh, you were and confess God is going to destroy your nation he's going to bring war he's going to bring pestilence and he's going to bring famine. Not a very popular message, particularly when you're rejected for 41 to 44 years. When he, when he finally, his ministry was over, he was my age. I had to be kind of frustrating not to have any success at all. Um, it's a good read. If you want, want to read the whole, the, whole, uh, the whole book, it's some 50 different chapters of the different ways that he tried to communicate Repent or be destroyed. It's good to read and not to take my word for it. Um, I don't want to talk about the Cubs too much, Dale, but I was at the soccer field of, about a month and a half ago uh, watching some of the grandkids play soccer, and somebody comes up and says, I got free tickets to the ball game today for the team against the, uh, the St. Louis is playing the Cubs. Anybody want them? I <laughs> go, I'm there. I want them. I want them. So I called Linda. We were babysitting the kids, and I said, got free tickets to the Cubs. Uh, let's go over and watch them. So we had to arrange some babysitting. We were watching the grandkids or something. We had it all worked out, and um, I, was, I was excited. 
because it was free and because it was the Cubs. So we went out, got ready to go over there, and uh, Linda comes out to the garage where I was working and said, turn on the radio. It was the sixth inning of the ball game. <laughs> it was an afternoon game. I didn't look at the tickets. The tickets, <laughs> I was assuming it was a six or seven o'clock game because it was a Saturday. So I missed the whole point. I missed an opportunity. And that's why I would suggest, don't take my word for it. Read the scriptures. Don't make the mistake I did. There's, there's worse mistakes to be made than, than I did. Anyway, enough about the Cubs and so on. So we've covered uh, Jeremiah, uh, Zedekiah, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you would, flip over to chapter 38. That's where we're going to um, spend a little bit of time. How many, other than those who've heard me uh, share, know who Ebed-Melech is? Probably nobody. He became a hero. I read this word. I was looking up a, in a Bible dictionary, Ethiopia, and, and, and uh, this story came up, and I've probably read it 150 times over the last nine months. It's just got a lot to say to me and perhaps to, perhaps to you. So uh, join with me as we kind of jump through here a little bit. Jeremiah was taking care of some property and he was arrested. He was arrested by Zedekiah's people and thrown into a prison. Zedekiah, even though he didn't seem to adhere to the Jewish religion, called for Jeremiah out of prison and said, tell me what's going to happen. I guess he had heard the people talking about what Jeremiah had been telling him over and over again to repent. And at the, at the end of uh, chapter 39, Verse 20, Zedekiah asked Jeremiah, and he says, what's going to happen? And in verse 20, it says, now here, please, O Lord, the king, let my humble plea come before you, and don't send me back to the house of the prisoner. I'll die. So King Zedekiah gave orders, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard, and they were able to give him daily bread until all the bread in the city was gone. Babylon had begun to squeeze Jerusalem. They'd cut off food supplies. There was no bread. The pestilence and war was at, at bay. Yet Jeremiah was still curious about what was going to happen. Jump with me at verse 38, or excuse me, chapter 38. Verse 2. Verse 1 describes a, a bunch of the officials, a bunch of the leaders. And they've, they've been hearing what Ebed, or what Jeremiah had been talking about. And, and they, they asked the question. Jeremiah was saying to all the people, this is what the Lord says. If you stay in the city, you're going to die by the sword by famine, by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans, which is also the Babylonians, shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. This is what the Lord says. This city is surely going to be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. This is what the officials said. 
the officials said to the king, which was Zedekiah, let this man be put to death, for he's weakening hands of the soldiers who are left in the city, the hands of all the people by speaking such words. For this man is not seeking the welfare of the people, but harm. Jeremiah's message was getting in the way. The soldiers were preparing to go a war against Babylon, even though Jeremiah said, you're not going to win. The city's going to be sieged. And he said, but he's, he's creating, in, uh, he's hindering the morale of the people. We, we need to get rid of it. So King Zedekiah said, I'm in verse 5, Behold, he's in your hands. The king can do nothing against you. What are you talking about? He's the king. You do whatever you want. But he didn't want to be um, committed one way or another. He says, well, do whatever you want with him. Here's what they did. Verse 6. They took Jeremiah, cast him into the cistern of Mali, Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of guard, letting Jeremiah down in the ropes. There was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. We're told um, in verse 9 that the bread supply had run out. So they put Jeremiah, let, let me describe what the cistern is like. In the culture, they would carve out in, in rock uh, a cistern, and then in the wet winter weather, they would collect all the water. And then they would use it in the summer during the dry spell. And this is what they th threw Jeremiah, well, they lowered him down with rope. They threw him uh, in this uh, pit. Uh, and there was nothing but mud. Now, if you can kind of visualize with me, uh, being stuck in the mud. If you've ever been to a creek or to a lake and got stuck in the mud. If you've ever gone to a Greenville Agape Festival, where it's muddy every year I've ever gone, uh, which was quite a few. Uh, matter of fact, someone was telling me that uh, it was muddy between the uh, concession stand and the stage, and one girl was walking along and got stuck in the mud, and her shoe was down in there, and she couldn't get it out. She just took off her shoes and left them. <laughs> so here he is stuck in this mud. No lights, and I'm pretty sure there wasn't a white toilet there where he could go. There's no bread, and he's stuck in the mud, not able to move, captivated. I don't know what he, what he may have been thinking. I don't know what he, he said. God said in, verse, uh, in chapter 1 that he would deliver him. But if I was there, I think I would probably say, God, I've ministered for 40 years. I'm in my 60s. Is this how my life's going to end? I'm a prophet. I was faithful to you. Like I said, I don't know that he said that, but I, I got to think maybe that thought came to his mind. I know the city's going to be seized, but Lord, is this the way I want, want to die? And then even me, like a hero out of nowhere, comes to, in verse 7. Then Ibn Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in a cistern at the time the king was sitting at the Benjamin gate. Ibn Melech went to the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil 
and all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting me into the cistern. And he'll die of hunger, for there is no bread in the city. Ibn Malik had a lot of differences from the culture. He was Ethiopian, which probably means he was, obviously it means he's from another country. He may have had a different culture. He may have had a different skin color. He may have had a different um, uh, language. And it says he was a eunuch. And that could mean one of two things in the Old Testament. It could mean that, um, that he was in, endowed to the service of the king uh, another less glamorous is that, um, I don't know how to say it, that he was spayed, so to speak. But he had things going against him. He probably was not a Jew since he was from Ethiopia. There are Jews in Ethiopia at this day. But he, he heard of Jeremiah. And to approach the king was not just one small feat. You did not just say, oh king, I've got a message, I'd like to talk to you. If you didn't humble yourselves to the king, you could, uh, you could be put to death. He apparently had some sort of um, access to the king. He apparently, he liked him and he went to him. He went against his culture. He went against his religion. He went to a king of authority. And he said, king, he's going to die. Well, the, the king should have known that. He authorized being put in the pit to die. Zedekiah changed his mind again for, for, the, for the good. Then the king commanded Ebed Melek, the Ethiopian, take 30 men with you here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed Melek took the men with him and they went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags worn out clothes which he let down to Jeremiah in a cistern by ropes. Then Ebed Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so and they drew Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remo remained in the court of the guards. I see this, this stranger who probably heard Jeremiah's message taking care of business by having the strength and the, uh, the wisdom to go to the king. Am I gone? What I loved about that is his resourcefulness. Said he went to the wardrobe and he pulls out some clothes. If he was stuck in the mud, you can't just tie a rope around you. It probably would have strangled him or pulled his arm off. He used the resources that he had, the wardrobe, the closet, our garage, our basement, our computer, our den. Uh, he used the resources he had. He said, tie this around you. Put it under your armpit so we don't pull your arms off. And with it, he got a, got a rope. He took 30 men. I can't believe he was that stuck. But I suspect that with 30 men, it was not a popular decision to save his life. The 30 men could have been soldiers 
in case he had some resistance from those who put him in a cistern and pulled him out and saved Jeremiah the prophet so that he can continue his ministry. And God honored what he said in chapter 1, that I'll, I'll deliver you from, from your people. I would like to suggest that all of us have those resources at our disposal of some sort. We all kind of have a closet, or like I said, a garage or a basement where maybe we won't never be like a Jeremiah, but we have things that you and I can do that are special because of who we are. Uh, I brought just a couple props. Could you use this to help somebody shingle their roof? Steve Cordy uses this probably on a daily basis. Or, or, or maybe something like cooking a meal for the, for the Dempseys while they're uh, going through the, these trials. I felt that um, Zedekiah, or excuse me, um, Ibn Melik took advantage of who he was, an Ethiopian, a eunuch, and was up to the challenge to go against authority, to go against the king, and use um, some of those things that he had. And I would like to just wrote down a few things that maybe, uh, and I'm not the Holy Spirit, um, God will lead you where you have opportunities to serve. You say, opportunities to serve? Man, you don't know how busy I am right now. Listen, I'm, I'm in my 60s, and I look back on my life, and I say, I've had a lot of opportunities that I passed by. A lot of, a lot of things that I wish I would have done that the Holy Spirit has prompted me to do, and I did not do. From our farmer church, uh, before we came, came uh, moved out this way, I, I remember people in the church would sometimes come and go. Uh, Linda and I were both in leadership, and a lot of times at church, we'd be talking about things and, uh, that needed to go on, and oftentimes I'd be linked up with my friends and sharing our um, joys and woes with one another, and sometimes people would come and go that I didn't pay any attention to. You know what I mean? Sometimes even at home, God has prompted me in my heart saying, you, you need to call this person. You need to send them a meal. You need to go cut their grass. You need to help them out. Encouraging note or a letter, phone call. Many times we, we miss those opportunities. Even Mealy took advantage of it. He was not afraid to go against the grain and use the resources that he had. Uh, we all have... Um, computers and crafts and, and books. Um, we can help people by giving. We can help people by praying for them. There are so many different avenues and opportunities that you and I have through the day that, that we can take advantage of those opportunities that God gives us. I suspect that none of us want to be like King Zedekiah, who is flim-flam. None of us will be like King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the most powerful guy on, on earth at the time humanly speaking. But we all can have a spirit like Ebed Melik did. We can model him.
Well, if you will, hop up now at verse 14. Jeremiah is now in custody of the court, which means he was kind of under house arrest. He could still speak and people still listen to him and he could still share. He just didn't have the freedom to move around the country. Verse 14, King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received from him a third time in the temple. The king said to Jeremiah, I want to ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, I'll, I'll tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, will you listen to me? King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, as the Lord lives, who made our God, our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said, this is what the Lord says. If you'll surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, your life shall be spared, and the city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you don't surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire. This is the third time that Zedekiah had summoned Ebed, or Jeremiah. And the same message was over again. You just got to surrender. You just got to give over to the authority of the Babylonians because we're going to, they're going to, they're going to march. Verse 23 says, All your wives and sons shall be led out by the Chaldeans, and you yourself will not escape from the land, but you'll be seized by the king of Babylon, and the city shall be burned with fire. And that's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar marched in. They burned the temple. They tore down all the walls, the same walls that... Uh, uh, a year or two ago, um, the Nehemiah uh, that we studied here, the Nehemiah came back and built, rebuilt, and they marched uh, all the people of any intellect, any authority out of Jerusalem, and they became subjects to Babylon. Uh, they only left the poor people and the under, underprivileged to stay behind. I'm in chapter 39 now. When Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, which was the Chaldeans, they snuck out of the city by way of the garden. The very thing that Jeremiah said, don't do, Zedekiah did. He was afraid that if he didn't escape, that the people would make fun of him and consider him a coward. So he escapes at night. Or so he thought. Talking about the Babylonian army now. Second part of verse 5. And when they had taken him, Zedekiah, they led him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him the conclusion of four different people here. 
First of all, Nebuchadnezzar remained in power and eventually was overthrown, I, I think, by Egypt or maybe the Medes and Persians. You history majors can help me out there. But he was in, in power and he took all the Jewish people and uh, made them slaves um, for, the, for the country. Here's what happened to, to Zedekiah. Verse 6. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. I can just imagine being a king and seeing all my officers, all my cabinet, all of Congress being slaughtered right in front of me. Plus all my family, all my sons lined up and slaughtered just in front of me. Because he didn't surrender to Babylon. He didn't listen to Jeremiah. He did as he pleased. And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar the captain of the guard, carried the exiles to Babylon. The rest of the peoples who were left were all deserted. Lost my place. Just a second, please. Verse 7. After he slaughtered all the nobles and killed all of his sons, he put, he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Then the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Man, king of Judah. Man, what a terrible way to die. To have your eyes poked out the last thing you saw was your sons and all your officials and all your men being slaughtered in front of you. And then they poked out his eyes, chained him in bronze, and, and threw him into prison. Of the four men, I wouldn't want to be Nebuchadnezzar. I wouldn't want to be Zedekiah. You know, you might say, what about Ebed Melik or what about Jeremiah? They were part of the king's people as well. Well, there's good news. In chapter 39, verse 12, King Nebuchadnezzar said, um, gives him a decree towards Jeremiah, says, take him, look after him well, and do no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzardan, captains of the guard, and this other guy that are listed there sent and they took Jeremiah from the court of the guard and trusted him to get Eliah, the son of, and it goes on and on. What happened there is Jeremiah was able to live in peace the rest of his life. He had such a good reputation that even the king of Babylon knew of him and knew of his good works and knew of his prophecy. And so he was spared. Matter of fact, he it's recorded that the third officer of Nebuchadnezzar was put in charge of him to make him comfortable wherever he go or wherever he wanted to do. He could go to Babylon or he could go to his home or wherever he wanted to. So God was faithful to Jeremiah all the way through. And what about Ebed Melech? The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. It said, Go say to Ibn Melik, the Ethiopian, 
This is what the Lord says, the God of Israel. Behold, I will fulfill my words against the city and no harm for good, for they shall be accomplished before you that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord. You shall be given into the hand of the men whom you are afraid of, for I will surely save you and you shall not fall by the sword. But you shall have your life as a prize of war because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Here's this foreigner, this non-Jew, different culture, who was faithful to Jeremiah, was the only person recorded of all the king's men who was saved, who was spared. Jeremiah had used his influence that he would be spared. I don't know if you can identify with any of those. I could identify so much with, with um, even Mele because he was just a simple guy. He was more like, more like probably most of us. He just took advantage of, of the situation he was in. And I don't know how I missed this so many times in reading in the Bible, but, but he was a, a, a modern-day hero. You know, as we make the most of opportunities, I want to I close. Man, went by way too fast. The kids are still going to be practicing, so we might have to sing two courses. But um, in my farmer church, uh, First Baptist in Collinsville, uh, I, I came to the Lord in um, 1971, uh, and our pastor was um, Gordon and Gail and, and his wife. And while, while I was there, uh, he was influential quite a bit in my life. He helped teach me, disciple me on how to lead, uh, we call it a Bible study, it was a, it was a family group. And um, he was gone because of the work of the pastor quite a few evenings through a week because uh, the ministry was demanding. And he had given a message about taking advantage of opportunities, similar to what I was trying to share here, of how to take advantage of who you are and where you are. And there was a young teenager in the audience who heard that message. And she says, I don't have many skills, but I know how to babysit. And the pastor and his wife had three children. They were young, uh, young tykes. And she went to the pastor and said, I will care for your children whenever you need them, whenever you need to baby away from the home. Not only will I care for them, you can create a schedule when you're gonna be gone and I will be there. I'll make that my priority. That is going to be my ministry. And I'll not just babysit them and, and watch the Muppets on TV, but I'll teach them. I'll disciple them. I'll tuck them in. I'll say prayers with them. And, and she began to do that. And it freed up the pastor so much that he felt comfortable leaving uh, his children with Lynn. Well, that was just the beginning of the ministry. As she got her license, she began to to drive them to their events to soccer when mom and dad couldn't make it. They were good parents, but as pastor, they were gone uh, often in the evenings when the, when the kids were around. Uh, Lynn grew in her, in her service and became, because what she learned just from babysitting, she applied to become a foster mother. I believe she was 21 at the time. And she began to take foster kids in not just 
excuse me, not the normal run of the kids, but she took in troubled kids. She picked, picked up one little girl who uh, weighed just a little more than seven pounds after six months. When you went into the room, um, first of all, she'd been abused in several different ways. She was paralyzed from the waist down. When you went into the room and spoke to her in any way, she would not even turn. She would not even respond. She had been so abused. Lynn took her in. She took other kids in who were abused. She not only took them in as foster parents, but then she adopted six of them. And I saw one of them. He's in his 30s now. I saw one of the young men in, in Office Depot, and I said, how's it going? He says, it's going great. I'm married. I have a family. Uh, and I think of Lynn often. Uh, she was such an influence on me. She had such an impact on these young people. Lynn, at age 26, died of Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it broke her heart. But I thought, a young gal used the skills and the opportunities she had to make an impact on a lot of different people, the likes of which we maybe don't even know this side of heaven. And I was talking just this week with someone. We don't know what kind of impact we have on somebody. It may seem like a simple gesture, a simple opportunity that we have to do something for someone. But we may get a blessing from it. We may be spared like Jeremiah and Eve may like, or we may not. We're just called to be faithful to the opportunities God has. And I would ask if the Holy Spirit would lead you to pray for opportunities. But if you do, be prepared because God's probably going to give them to you, which is not a bad thing if you're willing to go against the culture, to go against your background maybe, to go against authority and summon the king like Ebed Melech, or maybe not. So um, as we reflect on that, I'll ask the, the band if they want to come up and get ready to have a closing song, and uh, I'll close in prayer here. Father, uh, I don't know the hearts and minds of all, my, all these friends. I just know how committed so many of them are in our church now. I know people who do things, uh, I don't know, set up and, and, and getting equipment together, making coffee, bringing meals in, leading Bible studies, people who do things for the neighbors uh, that I'm not aware of. I'm just so grateful to be part of this body of Christ that meets here. I'm just excited about the opportunities and people who are not looking glory for themselves, but glory in yourself. I ask that you bless those people that uh, we're not aware of who do things, who are things, people who are becoming more godly, who are growing in Christ. I pray that your word would permeate our hearts, that we would grow more like Christ. And as our mind changes, that we would be more available to the opportunities that you give. As I heard about someone recently, there's no victory until God gets the glory. And I pray that for myself and for all of us, that you would be praised. Amen.